Our first lesson this evening from the prophet Jeremiah, the 15th chapter. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance on me for my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone, because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel according to St. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. From that time. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. We can in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Title for my message tonight, Are We Really Ready to Die for Jesus? When I was in the fourth grade in 1968, a man came to speak at our church. His name was Reverend Richard Wormbrand, and he told about how he had been in prison and suffered solitary confinement and even torture because 
of his Christian faith as a Lutheran pastor in communist Romania. He was released from prison, was uh, actually redeemed and able to come to the United States after that. There he appeared before a U.S. Senate hearing, and in the middle of that hearing, he took off his shirt and showed the world through the television cameras that were there the scars that he bore on his back. Ever since then, I've wondered, could I do that? The Holy Spirit has preserved these words for us from Matthew chapter 16 to help us with that very important question and to answer that question for us, yes, with the help of God. We'll begin by going over something that is pretty familiar to all of us, but it is important. The reality of evil, but also the reality of salvation. Last week, Pastor Packer introduced us to this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at a place very far north in Israel called Caesarea Philippi. This was a very pagan town, kind of a, a model of uh, the unbelieving Israelites' leadership, wanting to show the world how, quote, Roman they were. And this town boasted even having a place called the Gates of Hell. Well, it was here that Peter gave a great confession about who Jesus was. Thou art the Son of the living God, the Christ. And of course, as Pastor explained last week, this is God's answer to the gates of hell. The world is a beautiful place. Caesarea Philippi is really naturally a very incredibly beautiful place. But this world, as beautiful as it is, Caesarea, as beautiful as it is, naturally, uh, was a place, and the world still is a place that is full of evil, a place where people lie and steal and destroy. It may, in some cases, be small, but like a fire, it grows and can grow fast. Evil is the rejection of God as creator the rejection of God's commandments, the rejection of God's grace. It is not because of bad genes or because of poor education or poverty. In many cases, people who have ill health, people who have very little education, people who are very poor are often some of the most righteous people and on the other hand, some of the most well-refined, most well-educated and uh, wealthy people turn out to be some of the most evil. Evil is spiritual. And if we don't believe that, then we really don't understand the reality of it. God created this world. And of course, we still see the beauty of the creation in many ways. God loves this world, even though it has been filled with evil, which shows us that God is not just an amazing creator, but he is also an amazing savior. The reality of evil is always discouraging. I know that you get your fill of that whenever you watch the news. But salvation, on the other hand, the main reason for us to come to church every week is to counter all that discouragement to give us the encouragement of God's grace. In Romans chapter 12, 
Paul said, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There are many examples of that in the Bible. Take, for example, Joseph, who was mistreated by his brother, sold into slavery, and even after that, when he was taken to Egypt, ran into one problem after another. But Joseph trusted in the Lord. The Lord raised him up to become the right-hand man of Pharaoh. He didn't take revenge on the brothers, but actually forgave them. Or take the example of the slave girl of Israel captured by the Syrian general Naaman. Naaman suffered from leprosy, and this little girl did not uh, have any schadenfreude, no joy over his suffering. In fact, this little slave girl told Naaman that he should go to the prophet Elisha in Israel who would heal him. Or the great story of Queen Esther in Persia when Haman made his plot to destroy the Jews that were living there. And when Esther realized that if she let out her identity as a Jew, she might be killed along with everybody else, her uncle Mordecai assured her that the tolerance of evil is participation in evil. And so she gave up everything, risked everything, by telling the world and telling the king who she was and what her identity was. And the Lord used that to save his people. There is a common denominator in all three of these stories. And that the victory over evil did not come with any power in and of themselves, but rather in trust in God and in self-sacrifice of themselves so that God could do His work through them. Self-sacrificing love is the key to good overcoming evil, the very key of salvation itself. So God overcomes evil because He is the author of self-sacrificing love. This is what the books Matthew Mark, Luke, and John are all about, as well as the rest of the Bible. Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, was foretold by the prophets. They foretold that this prophet, this Messiah, this Savior would be small in the eyes of men, but great in the eyes of God. He would be powerless in many ways, or at least withhold his power from the world and be weak and be suffering and dying. And yet in his righteousness, in his self-sacrificing love, Christ would overcome death and the devil and give salvation to all of us. This is how God overcomes evil with good, with his good. Jesus was explaining that to the disciples as he went on further to explain what this Christ thing was that he had to suffer much, and that he had to die. To which Peter said, if I could give my own translation here, mercy, this will in no way happen to you. Jesus rebuked him even more harshly. Get behind me, Satan, he said. For you're not keeping in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. Men think about power. 
and they think that they can overcome evil with their own power, and they do not understand how serious a problem this is. It is strange that God would throw a lamb into the very mouth of the wolf, evil, and of devil himself. God could have used extreme force and violent destruction against the devil and all of his followers. But that would have only curbed the evil or maybe even have destroyed it. But it wouldn't have done anything to overturn, to turn the bad into good. And there is where we find the reason for God's doing what he has done. The devil boasts, look how powerful I am and all that I can do with my evil and my destruction. God says, look how powerful I am with all that I can do with my suffering and with my self-sacrificing love to give up what is most precious to me, my only begotten Son, for that very reason, not only to put evil down, but to save those who have been overcome by it to turn evil into good. This is what the pure love of God in Christ has done and why it is more important than all the power we might find anywhere else in the world. This is what Jesus was sent to do for this world and what he has done for each one of us. God's self-sacrificing love in Jesus not only destroyed the devil, but it destroyed the devil's work in each one of our hearts. This is what our baptism and our discipleship is all about. We live in a world full of evil, and evil still wants to come back and return to our hearts. And so we will always struggle against it. And this is why Jesus went on and said to his disciples that they also would have to take up their crosses and follow him. Let's think briefly about the kinds of crosses we might find ourselves bearing in our lives. Could it be as extreme as Reverend Richard Wormbrand's cross that he had to bear, his imprisonment and torture, and as he saw with his own eyes, many other Christians who were literally killed for their faith. Would it be that extreme? Well, Jesus once said, he who is faithful in what is least will be faithful in what is much. And that's why I always think about this question of, could I really die for Jesus? The answer to that question is, can I put up with the, uh, the micro-persecutions that happen all the time around me today. As I focus on those, as I think about the little ways that the devil persecutes the church today and, and, and look to God to help me overcome those persecutions, I know he will be with me even if they increase and even if they call for the ultimate sacrifice itself. But these are some of the ways that people are experiencing persecution right now, this very day, in our very place. We're not in Caesarea Philippi, but we're in a place much like it. One of those ways is the persecution of blasphemy. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, 
misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Christians hear words like that and they don't know how to respond. They're caught off guard. None of those things are true. The Ten Commandments are the epitome of justice and the forgiveness of God is the epitome of goodness. But not to the proud. Not to those who think they have no sins that need to be forgiven and they do not need to be saved. Those are the ones who scream these blasphemies. Jesus was called Beelzebub, the devil. And Jesus said, if they would call me that, they will also call you that as well. Christians should not be caught off guard by this kind of verbal outpouring against God and against God's people. Do not fear them, Jesus said, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. The blasphemies are nothing but empty words that mean nothing compared to the truth of God. Another kind of persecution we are all experiencing right now is the persecution of deceit. John, in his revelation, tells us that the devil deceives the nations. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. He loves confusion. He loves chaos. He hates the truth. When I was a student at the seminary, I was asked to read the French philosopher Michel Foucault. His writings remind me a lot of the words of David from Psalm 12. With our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Foucault was one of the men who came up with the idea that there is no such thing as a universal truth truth that is true for all people. Instead, he taught the idea that there are regimes of truth. There are power structures that produce truth. This is the end of all debate, the end of all discussion, the end of all reasoning. It is all replaced by college students shouting down those they don't want to hear from governmental boards of misinformation, doxing, social monitoring, and scoring. But Psalm 12 goes on. David says the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The world may think there is no such thing as truth, and that the real commodity that is important is power, but God's Word tells us otherwise. We can have confidence in that. Another form of mild persecution that we must struggle with, even in our own day today, is what I would call the persecution of comfort control. In the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, otherwise known as the USSR, it was common for Christians, especially not to have the nicest apartments, not to even be allowed to go to schools and universities, and to take the least paying and most meaningful, menial jobs. That same problem is beginning to appear in our country today. Ask Kelvin Cochran, Atlanta's fire chief, was fired from his job because he wrote in a book 
And he believed that marriage is for a man and for a woman only. God calls us in the face of those who would mildly make life difficult for us to trust in him. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says, and having food and clothing therewith, let us be content. If God would give up his own son to overcome the evil in our hearts, to turn bad into good, he will keep all of his other promises as well. In him, we may lose our lives, but in Christ, we will find them ultimately. We may lose everything in this world, and yet as Christians, we will never lose our souls. Can we really be ready to die for Jesus? Yes, we can. As we look to him who died for us, as we ask his help in dealing with all the little ways, turning sometimes into big ways, that the devil attacks God's people. As God gives us success in the little things, he will give us success in the big things as well. God help us. God be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.